Welcome to the Superhero of Love podcast. I am Bridget Fonger. I wrote a book called Superhero of Love, Heal Your Broken Heart and Then Go Save the World. That book is going to be out in January 2019, but I didn't want to wait until that time to start talking to superheroes of love. And guess what? Here's the news. You are a superhero of love. And through talking to other superheroes like yourself, tapping into that little superhero inside of you, I'm hoping that you and I and all of us start feeling more and more like superheroes of love, meaning that we love and are loved more than ever before. So welcome. Let's get this party started. Welcome, superheroes. We are here today with a very special guest who was introduced to me by a very special mutual friend, Stephanie Reed, introduced me to our guest, Victoria Markham. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you. I heard your story, and I heard about the movie that you're doing that was inspired by the experience that you had several years ago. And I know you have an important date coming up, so I wanted to get you in front of the microphone as soon as possible because I think that your story is so important, and I think I cannot wait to see your movie, and just hearing about your movie got me excited. So why don't we start with your story and the event that happened that brought you to this moment in your life? Okay, so it's almost seven years to the date. Actually, June 10th is the uh, seven-year anniversary of my son's death. Wow. And my film will launch on June 11th, so we, we planned this uh, perfectly to line up. And, you know, uh, seven years ago, at this time of my life, I was a mother of two very buoyant and beautiful children, aged three and a half and seven, two boys, um, Banyan and Koa. And my husband and I had been married uh, 13 years and were really... Um, you know, just in the middle of being parents and learning about parenthood and, and love and family. And, you know, we, we had a very loving family and a, and a really beautiful home and great uh, safe land off of the road and everything was just really thriving. Um, and one day I was driving home from a, an event that I was at where I help young women and I was driving down my driveway and I had brought some treats for the boys and I stopped my car in the driveway and they ran up to the car and um, got up on the, the step stool and inside the car and we were all very excited and I told them I had a beautiful piece of cake for them and you know that I would meet them over in my parking spot. And we've done this ritual several times, you know, we had a little routine with it. And my, my oldest went uh, on the path that was closest to the house, and that was uh, the standard. But this time, for some reason, this day, my youngest boy, uh, my three-and-a-half-year-old, decided to go behind the car. And I did not even think, or nor could I see, behind my car. And he um, put his body between a rock wall and where I pull into park. And when I pulled in, um, my car hit him. The back tire knocked him over and he fell and he hit his head on the rock wall. And I felt myself 
bump in my car. Um, I'd kind of hit the corner of that rock wall many times. It was a very narrow passage and I didn't, um, never, you know, thought much about it. But this particular time I sat and all this is happening in split seconds, you know, mind you. And this voice went through my head that said, Victoria, whatever just happened was meant to be. Wow. And I looked in my review mirror and I saw my son laying in child's pose, um, on the earth and death never really crossed my mind. You know, it was, he got hurt. Is it his leg? You know, is it his arm? You know, you, you just don't go to death. It's like, of course not. He's a loved child and this is a safe land and I'm his mother and he's got love. Like, you know, I got out of the car and I turned him over to help him. And it was clear in that moment that death was imminent. Um, wow. So I, I picked him up and, um, I did the motherly act of panic and saving and help and 911. And, you know, we live rural We're we're outside of town on five acres and there's a fire station just around the corner from our house. And I knew that I could get to the fire station swifter than I could wait for an ambulance. And so, I uh, put Koa in the passenger seat of the car and I raced to the fire station. Um, By the time I got to the fire station and grabbed him into my arms, um, his body had stopped trembling and tremoring and he had uh, taken his last breath in my arms. Oh my gosh. It's every, I'm not even a mother and it's my worst nightmare of things that happen on planet earth is this, you know, that any mother should lose their child. I'm, I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry. What an incredible thing that you heard that voice though. What did that give you? Did that, did you remember it right away? Did it give you comfort right away or did it come back to you later? No, it never went away. Yeah. It didn't negate the pain. Right. It didn't negate the desire. It didn't negate the longing and it did not excuse me from grief. Um, What it did eventually do is become a voice that I could listen to alongside of my pain eventually. Oh, that's so beautiful. Alongside your pain. That's so great. Like they're walking side by side. That's so good for us to know. It's the journey. It's the journey between life's not fair and I'm not getting um, relief and I want my son back and everything mother inside, you know, it's the journey between that voice and the mother to come together and walk that path to try and find where the two meet, you know, and that's, I knew that's where healing would be for me. If I could bring those two together and try and, trust that there is something beyond my own understanding and, and that there is destiny in humanity and there is um, first breaths and last breaths and we don't get to decide when they are and, and control this life on that level. We don't. And so facing into that has been a process of deep spiritual maturity (laughs) 
tons of community support, um, many, many, many days and nights of just literally eating dirt Mm. (laughs) and waiting to see which part was going to win, you know, the broken mother or the one who trusts this life. Your motherhood had to continue. Obviously, it continued even for Koa, but you had to nurture your son who also had a trauma. So tell us how you navigated that while navigating your own pain. I don't even understand how you did those things. You know, it's a really beautiful uh, point to bring up. And I think many people probably have that question, you know, and I, I have to say that um, truth be told, I don't even remember. Mm. And why I don't remember is because in that great numbness that comes and the shock and the trauma of the death of my younger boy, um, there is an innate human system within me and I believe within others uh, from my view thus far of watching many of us mothers walk this path that that comes into play. It's almost like you're living on muscle memory. Mm. Uh, You're living on a, a remembrance of how many days you got up and just cooked breakfast and how many days that you drove to the soccer practice and to the gym into the friend's house and you know it's like your body keeps going my body kept going um in some way that wasn't with me in it and that's a great great point without you in it right in that place that people uh they can't imagine death of this level because they don't they have never had to come to that place where you really literally are not in your body and it still keeps moving. No one can expect that. We think we have to be inside of our body for it to keep moving, and we don't. There is a, an innate wisdom inside of us that keeps moving and pulling us towards life. Life wants to live. If it's meant to live, it wants to keep living. And the only explanation I can come to is my life wanted to keep living And even though I didn't want to be in my body and I didn't want to be living, um, my destiny or my life force wanted me to be here. And so it kept getting up out of bed and cooking breakfast and driving my son to play dates and showing up for what was, you know. I read some of your writing online, which is so beautiful. I hope you write a book one day. Um, There's a post from November 12th, 2015, and it's called life's glass from the heart of a mother's grief. And I'm just going to read a tiny bit of it so that people get a taste of who you are also as an artist expressing yourself. I woke up this morning and waited for the moment when my dream body and my waking body would unite. There's a pause. When I open my eyes, my heart switches back and forth between the dreaming and waking worlds to see which one it must live now. Sometimes I close my eyes and attempt to return to the dream because it feels to be the most ideal choice for the day. Thoughts in waking life begin first with, yes, Koa's still gone. And yes, you are still here. My brain tells my body, 
you must get up and live. Inside the fog of the in-between comes my first question, what day is it? It takes a few moments for me to remember. My dream time lingers and my subconscious asks. I assess the day I have planned and ask myself, can I do this? Banyan crosses my mind. I remember my mother self. My abiding commitment to him is what allows me to sit up, put on my moccasins, open the drapes, and turn on the bath. I add an essential oil that feels most appropriate for my mood and a handful of sea salt to help cleanse the energy. While the bath is filling, I step into the kitchen and begin the day one foot in front of the other. And what, what are you thinking? Tell me. It hasn't changed. <laughs> ah. It's still that. Mm. People think you heal and you get on and you go beyond. And some things do, but some things don't. And that is still, that is still there. It's a little swifter and it's not every day. This journey, the step-by-step over these seven years has brought you to learn new things about how we, how you and how we as a culture handle grief. And I'd love to hear this podcast is, I talk to people that are in the business of helping people heal each other's hearts, right? They're in the business of healing their own hearts and healing, healing others' hearts. And that's who you are in the world is out of this terrible pain, you're out in the world helping. It sounds like you were doing that previously as well, helping people heal their hearts. So I would love to hear what you have to say about how we handle grief and your advice on how we might handle it a little bit better. Yeah, we're going to have to handle it a lot better, actually. And the word little needs to be removed from the sentence. You know, it's we are in a very big choice point culturally. And what, you know, in that dream state, dream waking, decision making to be here, not be here, you know, really did for me um, was to have to reach out into my culture. And if I was to be upright and still operating, where in my culture was there a place for me to be both a bereaved mother and a woman showing up? And it was tremendous to, um, to try and bring the bereaved mother along with me anywhere in this culture. And everybody really needed the part that was going to show up and be recovered or whole or mm. alive again. And everybody had their eye. It was a very big community uh, impact here. And everybody had their eye on the recovery and when it was going to get better and there wasn't a lot of space for a true ending to happen first. And so what I met culturally was everybody was super graceful and assisting for a long period of time in my eyes, a month, you know, um, meals were brought, house was clean. People really showed up. I have an incredible community. Um, which is way more than most people get. I was really, it was a privileged uh, time of grieving. And, and yet there's a time when everybody then says, well, we're moving on. Uh, right. <laughs> and, and I wasn't able to move on. It, it was clear as in every good labor, <coughs> you can have 
a midwife and a whole room full of people or a doctor and nurses and they can be right there and then they say okay we've been here a long time you know is that baby gonna come out and or you look to them saying aren't you going to do something and they say to you back uh it's you that does it you know this is your baby to have wow and so it's the same in the grief process is like people will move on and then it becomes my grief to hold and my grief to, to let destroy, rework, rearrange my life. It didn't happen to them. It happened to me. It happened to them through me, but it happened to me. And so when everyone started to go back to their daily lives and move on and I hadn't, I started to look into my culture for where are the people that help this process. And come to find out that grief had almost gone extinct. Wow. <laughs> the services for it, the um, attention to it, um, the programs designed for it, the people speaking about it were just so small, small handful of people. Luckily for me, uh, those handful of people were the most skilled and most beautiful people I've ever met. Because they were hanging on in a culture that was making grief go extinct, and they were unwilling. So I went to them. You know, I went to um, Taos, New Mexico, to uh, Ted Wired and his beautiful program he has out there. A week long, we stayed as a family. I went to Joanne Cacciatore, who is a, she's at a doctorate level professor at University of Arizona that has a program that helps bereaved parents specifically. She now has what they call a care farm where she rescues animals and then pairs them with grieving people. She um, was just a very wise woman, a very solid uh, place to lean into my questions. Um, yeah, um, Francis Weller, you know, who is now quite renowned for his work in grief and his soulful uh, journey uh, with writing and expressing, he... Um, was getting his start then and he became a voice on the phone where I could call and talk to. But for the most part, on a daily basis, I was asked to go to hour and a half long counseling sessions and try all of these methods, pay 150 bucks and, and wait till Wednesday, you know? Well, grief is way too wild for that. It's way too wild for that. It's way too feral. It's way too primitive. And in that place of trauma, we truly are in that um, reptilian brain of fight or flight. You know, there isn't a, a timeline. Actually, time disappears in a way and becomes nonlinear. And need is in moments. And need is in, in it, it arises when it arises in the self. There isn't a scheduling of it. And I got incredibly, incredibly disheartened as I started to move around looking for ways to honor my grief and still operate here in this culture. Because if I needed to be in the middle of the grocery store and fall apart, mm. <laughs> if, I, if I didn't want to wait till Wednesday to have a conversation with somebody about how bad I felt, you know, there was nowhere to go. There was nowhere to go to cry. There was nowhere to go to be. There was nowhere to go. You had to disappear, remove yourself, be alone and fall apart and melt until you could get face back 
and then step back into life again to where people could tolerate the interaction. Um, not to mention the big gray blanket, I call it, uh, by a teacher of mine's uh, wording. You know, the big gray blanket. Everybody you see has their head sideways and they're like, oh, you know. And the things that people um, said out of love and, and attempt were appreciated in so many ways. And yet it was very clear that our culture has no idea how to hold grievers. And I ended up having to really have to work through constantly the things that were said to me mm. as a recovery system. And, and I just wanted to disappear and die myself. I really did. I was just not, I knew I couldn't make it. It wasn't enough nutrients. <laughs> right. And it sounds like you felt very alone in those times too. Like, how about, can I ask about your husband? And it, cause it's, a lot of times marriages are um, fall apart after something like this happens and you guys are still thriving as a couple. And how did that was, I, I, the other thing is, is that he was also obviously having his, his own set of grief and your son was having his set. I don't understand even how you navigated all of those, like bouncing up against each other's hearts every day. Yeah, again, you know, um, muscle memory, uh, innate wisdom, innate ability to move. I have no idea how we did it. We, I did notice that we took turns a lot. When he would be under the covers, trembling and unable to move, I was cooking dinner and showing up. And then I would take my turn and he would ha be having a break right? We don't just get, we don't just get grief and then we're never anything else all day long. Like we are other things within it. And then it hits and boom, you're back on the ground. You know, I have a lot of moments where I can say, you know, I would be on the, the tile of my floor snotting and screaming, you know, like I just felt like I was dying and there's no way I was ever going to survive the moment. And 10 minutes later, I would be up cooking dinner. And I didn't cut myself off or say no to the pain. It just plays itself through and then you get up. And in the beginning, that's months where you're just crying and just grieving. And then, and then it's a little less and a little less. And now seven years later, I don't even know when it's going to hit. But when it does, I sure as hell know to walk away and honor it. Hmm. And I think marriage um, is the same as, in reflection is the same as the child, you know, it's like you just do what you've always been doing until something else happens. And I um, felt comfortable with my husband because we had the same loss. Now I want to really re correct when you say your marriage is thriving, you know, because it's not, um, it's not designed. Grief is not designed for thriving. Mm. Okay, great. Thank you for correcting me. That's perfect. It's, um, it's designed to reveal uh, all the layers back. <laughs> hmm. and so where there's holes that have been in the marriage, they all got revealed. And where there was challenge in the marriage, it came up. And where there was grace, it came up. And where there was love, it came up. And it was all of it. You know, and we stand at a seven-year precipice, and I have to tell you right now, it's 50-50. Yeah. Mm. So 
in my teachings, some would say that seven-year cycle is actually um, a place of completion. You know, seven years, seven directions, there's a, an understanding about it. I, I don't know what is here moving forward. I know that I have watched my husband blossom into who he is more fully, and I've watched myself blossom into who I am more fully. Uh, because grief is individual, <laughs> Um, it was collective and now it's individual. And so now we stand across from each other and say, now that we know this about ourselves, are we still compatible? Are we still who we are to each other? And it's, it's a moment in mm-hmm. that for us, you know? So as much as I want to be the heroic couple that survived, I can tell you, well, we walked seven years together through incredible fires and supported each other. And, um, Grief will do what it is meant to do in spite of our own wishes and desires. And I don't know what the future holds. I, I feel to say that one of the ways that we did work together as a couple is that we recognized both of us individually that we could not get our needs met here in this culture. And we, we agreed to pilgrimages, you know, we agreed to go to other cultures and use our connections and our a love of um, indigenous and ethnic to to find where we could go elsewhere, and uh, we called on those connections and were invited into many different cultures and many different walks of life to really learn and live the ways that they see grief and the ways that they honor their loved ones and their ancestry and um, there we started to find a truth and a healing and cultures that still had their grief uh, paths intact, a way of honoring a life and death cycle to its completion, not just celebrating life and production and um, consuming and arriving and stardom and career. You know, they actually had the bookends still in place. You live and you die. And when, when birth happens, we do this. And when death happens, we do this. And we uh, got to see that there is health around grieving. And we're, you know, we were forever grateful. It really carried us. Can you tell us about one of these cultures that you went to, one place that you went? That, and Yeah, I can. And, one, you know, there's many. Um, I would mention some Bompusome in the Dagara tribe in the African tradition of grieving. They have full grief rituals, you know, that last a weekend. And um, that was one place that was really beautiful. One more uh, that I can give you more details about. Um, you know, we went to Mexico. My husband's employee uh, uh, base is Latino. And they, um, there was family members within his uh, workforce that had lost children as well. And they invited us to Mexico to their Dia de las Muertes celebration. And um, they themselves couldn't go, this one particular family that had a son die, and they asked us if we would go down and decorate their son's grave for them. Oh, beautiful. We got to go down and be picked up at the airport by their family and, and taken all over and shown and loved and cared for. And then, Um, you know, they helped us collect everything we would need. Um, we had brought with us a big altar bag of my son's belongings, like his little red guitar and his shoes and a picture and some toys. And, 
um, you know, they took us out to this uh, lake, um, uh, Lake Patsquaro, you know, to the Mishwakan region. And they took us out to, on this boat, out to this island where they were going to be doing this big celebration. Um, they do it all over in the villages around, but this particular one, they had uh, a graveyard way at the top of the island. It was a tiny little island, and the graveyard was way on top, and um, there was a burial site for children. And they took us up there, and, uh, you know, we asked permission to put our altar down, even though we didn't have our own grave. And then they brought us down and took us around the villages to uh, show us, you know, the way that they were holding ancestry and death. And every single grave, whether someone was sitting by it or not, uh, in every graveyard in each of the villages was lit up, decorated with flowers and food and life and beauty and uh, toys if it were kids, alcohol and you know, favorite foods if it were adults. It was just bustling with flowers they had grown all year long for this purpose. It looked like the women, I'm a chef, and I could tell you that those women cooked for days. They cooked for days to make the breads and the stews that they had out. It was uh, all handmade and not with the intention of being eaten, but with the intention of offering it to the ancestor. And then to our surprise, they would invite us to sit at their graves with them. You know, we would sit down and we could see, you know, what they were, they were, the way they were dressed. There was little babies all the way to like grandmas with canes, you know, and grandpas and the whole family was around each grave. And um, then the mariachi band would come through <laughs> and everyone would get up and I mean, everyone would get up and just see the joy through, you know, here comes the joy, you know, like, okay, we're going to dance. We're going to move the energy. We're going to breathe. We're going to let the life in, you know, and then the mariachi band would make its way to the other side of the graveyard and everyone would sit back down again and go back into a very reverent silence. And it really, uh, for the first time since my son had died, I felt like I was normal. You know, I felt like I was normal, like, oh, there's the joy and there's the pain and they're living side by side. And, and these people understand how to hold both and they understand how to uh, be with beauty within pain and pain within beauty and to not have to set aside either and pretend like it never happened and they all night. (laughs) Wow. That is so beautiful. Uh, I, really want to go to go there for Dia de los Muertos now and and just have that have that experience um I want to ask you I just wanted to say I adore that thing that you've said a couple of times the side by side that that both things can be present at the same time and I think that that's another thing in our culture that obviously this this striving for happiness and having and pushing down all negativity, whether it's sadness or anger or grief. And we, it's, it's like, no, we, we, they're so siloed and we have to have them side, they have to be separated out. And I love this side by side. I feel like that should be the title of your book, but <laughs> it's such a, let me tell you what it is. Oh, oh, great. Terminology, you know, it's something that came very early and it's called tragic beauty. Oh, that's so exquisite. That's way better than side by side. That's so beautiful. But I just want to say that's that's one of your gifts to me in this interview is is that that I am one of those people 
I do that. I silo things and I like, okay, let's get through the negative stuff, the ugly stuff, the little ugly bits faster and get over here to the pretty bits. So thank you for that gift. All right. So, so you have been on this journey with many cultures and I'm assuming this is what this movie is helping us see is that there are other ways of dealing with grief than we are dealing with them currently. Well, you know, the, the film is interesting because, you know, it was just another thing that came without, uh, you know, without seeking, you know, it just, uh, it was a series of events. I was at a training as a death doula and I was on the way home with a friend and she wanted me to fill in the pieces of the story of Chloe's death that she didn't have. And, and after I told her the story from beginning to end on our big five hour drive, you know, and she said, God, I feel like I just watched a movie. And then boom, there it was. It was like, Oh my God, I'm going to make a documentary about my experience. And I didn't plant that thought. It was another one of those hands on the steering wheel. Like, you know, what's that, you know? And, and she said, that's so strange. You say that because my friend who's a documentary filmmaker is coming in two weeks. And I wonder if we could all just have some time together and uh, that date came and we did indeed sit, sit together as women. And um, the next morning she came back and we took a long walk. The documentary filmmaker, Katie Teague is her name. And, and she said, I need to hear the story. And I shared as much as I could. And she said, I'll do it. I'll do it. I want to do this film. And I didn't know what that meant. I'm not a documentary filmmaker, <laughs> nor had I ever dreamed of being in a film, you know, um, and the process began. It was it was as if the universe called it forward. I don't, you know, I know it sounds esoteric, but in a lot of ways, I'm very esoteric now because I really, in order to get through what I've been through, I have to believe there's unseen forces here. And so I, we started on the process. Well, of course, in my mind, I'm like, great, we can go to all these cultures, and I'll show you, and then I can tell the story about what it was from each culture that really helped and I'll give it to the people and I really want to help people and that's really great. And, um, you know, here we are a year and a half later and the movie is done. And I watched it for the first time probably two weeks ago and it's not that story that mm. I've written in my mind. And I really went through most of the the, the film really believing that that was the story we were telling. And I didn't realize how many times the camera was on my personal experience. Hmm. And I didn't realize as she did, because she's a seasoned documentary filmmaker that really, um, that this needed to be a personal story. You know, it wasn't just Victoria standing up and saying, look over here and look over here. The bit I was the subject and that, that it was my own resilience that was being tracked, you know, and how do you get through grief? was being viewed from my eyes, not from the Latino people or the African people or the Native American people, or, you know, I wanted to highlight them and she was highlighting me the whole time. Mm-hmm. And- but in a way that is highlighting them. I mean, because they helped you so deeply. Can I, we stepped over something because you mentioned the word, the words death doula. So we need, we need you to tell us what a death doula is. Death doula in our culture, it's an, it, I don't know if it's a new term. I think there's probably some really wise women out there that have been doing this for so long. And now there's all this catchy terminology coming through as the death trade takes its, um, you know, pace back in our culture. A death doula would be somebody who um, can midwife people across the line. 
And so they're in an active place of dying and uh, a death doula would come in sort of as a hospice nurse would come in, but there's eminent death and the death doula comes and creates ceremony around the dying and works with the person and the family on how to do it in a ritualistic and intimate way rather than a fear-based distant way and send them, you know, to the morgue right when they die. And, you know, it, this is a way of being really intimate with death, a way of decorating with flowers, sitting with the dead, letting people have their moments, letting the dead rest while the spirit's transitioning. There's a belief that we have the ability to be in those moments in, in very intimate ways. And that my belief is, is actually the homeopathic, the very first dose of recovery that is available when somebody we love dies, that if we can truly stay with that death and be intimate with it, that we begin the journey towards healing immediately. If we are distant from it and we want to tuck it away and hide it and make somebody else deal with it, there's a lot of catching up to do with, uh, with the psyche going into sort of a numb state and a, a place of shock. Um, it takes a lot longer to get back because you don't have the memory of where did my person go? And, and where are they now? You know, you let somebody else do that. And instead, when we touch it and we feel it and we make the decisions, it puts our feet on the path to moving forward without miss big missing pieces. And not everybody gets that opportunity. I want to be sensitive to that. Some people's people, we don't even know where they are still, or, you know, they died in a way that wasn't uh, recoverable of a, of a body. So it's not just a death doula for body. It's a death doula for death. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. And you are now a death doula. You help other people through this process. I will never say no. Oh, is it so my, beautiful. Is it what I'm announcing into the world? Uh, no. But, but I have a sacred responsibility, you see, because I've been shown what I've been shown and I've been through what I've been through. And I, I believe because of that, it's an initiation and it's my responsibility when somebody asks or has that need that I say yes, because I'm strong enough to do that. And I did spend some time doing that in the last years, um, in very intimate and beautiful ways. It's not my focus, you know, um, but I, I am, uh, available within the death trade in any capacity but my true place is i serve the grievers the ones who remain so there's lots of people now helping people cross over and there's lots of people now doing death doula and there's lots of people now being death midwives and coming to the family at times of death i actually um, am dedicated to what happens afterwards and the death has taken place, the burial has happened, the service has taken place, the community has done its work, and that person then is on their own. That's the most tender place for me, so of course that's the place I gravitated towards collecting the most medicine. And that's my focal point, is I want to uh, really address that place in our culture where, where the grievers sit trying to face into a culture that has no grief cultural ways. Are you training people? in doing this so that those of us who go through what you went through in the future have somebody, because you, you were so alone, so have somebody like you to come forward? Are you training others? I am, and so are a few others that I truly respect, yes. Yay. Okay, so tell us about your organization. Our organization is called Life Cycle Center. Um, the website has been a two-year in making because, you know, one can have an idea and that comes from the head 
But again, with this path that has been so extinct, it has taken a couple of years to really ask into what is going to be true resource and what's really going to help. And I'm one person. And so what I've settled with in Life Cycle Center as a beginning is that um, obviously the film will launch. But what my truest heart says is that in this technological age with all this resource that we have available that we're using right now, you and I, um, I can reach the most amount of people and I can reach them right where they are. So the ability to get oneself up out of bed every day is not a reality for everyone, but maybe sitting down in front of a computer and doing a writing group with other grievers is. Maybe it's not an option. Somebody has the resource to go to Mexico and sit in a graveyard with that beautiful essence, but maybe uh, through uh, explaining the teachings and, and transmitting in video, I can deliver that essence to them right where they are in their home. And so my point is to make it most affordable still be able to make a living, be able to uh, reach as many people as possible and reach them where they are. And so I'm developing and designing programs that do that, um, writing programs mixed with video. Um, I have a teacher training certification that I'm offering for people that work with grievers, but it's all done in first person. You don't get to show up as a professional with a certain level of education and that then talk about the other. It's really, uh, if you're going to know how to work with grievers and you're going to know how to be in the grief, you're going to have to do your work first person. And because a griever doesn't need therapy or therapeutizing or fixing, they're not broken, they're grieving. So they have to be able to feel that you can relate. And in order to relate, then we have to go into our own places of, of working those edges so that we can honestly look a person across in the eyes and say, I, I have felt something like that in me. You know, so everything is done in first person. There's not going to be any big hyped up book study, uh, look at everybody else kind of energy in these programs. You're going to have to walk through it yourself. So those are the programs I have designed right now. And, and that with the launch of the film and podcasts and moving about the earth, showing the film, I think that's enough for now. Okay. And I didn't know about your podcast. What's your podcast? Tell me about the podcast. I'm, I'm serving others podcasts right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have been serving many podcasts lately. And okay. All of you Thank you for podcasts. serving mine. <laughs> again, again, I want to really reiterate this Life Cycle Center is, is trying to show up where there isn't something already. We are not trying to uh, re, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. If it's covered, there's a thousand million podcasts. Nobody here needs to start a podcast. We can show up for other people's podcasts. What's not being created is resources that reach people right where they are. Yeah, no, I think that's an exquisite idea. This is what I would need if I were in that position to talk to you just like this. Yeah. And share my heart with you and have you share your heart with me. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Okay. So tell tell them your website and also tell them how they can see your film and, and where you are with the film. Great. Right now, uh, the life cycle centers website is due to launch at the end of summer, uh, 2019 and it's life cycle center.com. Um, the URL that we're obtaining right now and hopefully will be in place and you'll be able to type either and get to the same place. But 
um, lifecycle.center is the one we're working towards right now. The film is, the film website is up and you may go on to the film website, uh, uh, rememberdoc.com. So www.rememberdoc, like remember documentary, D-O-C, rememberdoc.com. And you can see the trailer for the film there and you can read about the process and the making of the film. And if you put your uh, email in there, you'll get all the announcements for the film and you'll get the announcements when the website is up and you'll be able to track where the film is showing. And as the film, we're in our pre-launch right now, June 11th, and the um, debut of the film will happen August 26th. And after that, we will have up a calendar of where we're going with the film. Fantastic. And I will say people can invite the film into their communities. There will be a page on the website that talks about how to bring the film and set up an event for the film in your own community. I know of you through our friend Stephanie, and I know that is a small community, and there may be many other women who are in a small community, and this tragedy has hit them, and it would be a beautiful gift to the community to to bring this in. Thank you for all that you do to help our hearts. You already helped my heart in just this conversation. I don't share your experience, but you've already helped my heart, and I know that you're going to help many of the listeners' hearts as well, and I just want to thank you for all that you're doing to help help people's hearts and and bring grieving back into our culture as a loving transformational experience. It doesn't have to be what we have up to this point tried to shove under the carpet and we can actually embrace it and deal with our hearts with love when we're dealing with grief. It is absolutely full-on transformation, full-on transformation to walk through this grief. And you don't always feel the love or the availability to it. But I can tell you that I really have seen over and over and over again, and in my own self, we have the capacity to grieve, even the most horrific of circumstances as human beings. We have it within us. We do. We do. It's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you for making time and thank you for, for doing what you're doing. And I can't wait to see your film. Thank you. June 11th at the Unitarian Universalist in Ashland, Oregon, 6.30. Yay! Thanks for joining us, superheroes. And if you like the podcast, please go rate and review us. It'll help us bring more superheroes of love into the fold. And don't forget, Superhero of Love is now out Wherever you buy your books, go grab a copy. Grab a copy for a friend. Grab a copy for a million friends. <laughs> Have a great day, Superhero.